legendary space physicist Margaret Kivelson, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Do you know why we're nearly sure there's a vast ocean under the thick ice that surrounds Jupiter's moon Europa? It's because Margaret Kivelson and a handful of her colleagues convinced NASA that there should be a magnetometer on the Galileo orbiter. And that just begins to capture the contributions made by this 93-year-old pioneer. Oh yeah, she also worked on Pioneer 10 and 11. You are going to love my conversation with her, I guarantee it. Down at the other end of the show waits the Planetary Society's chief scientist. Bruce Betts will tell us about the night sky, review a couple of This Week in Space History milestones, drop a random space fact on us, and give you the chance to win another great prize from the Planetary Society and Chop Shop in this week's Space Trivia Contest. Who doesn't love a tiny flying machine on Mars? Would you believe Ingenuity has now completed 21 flights? It's still in great condition and has just been given a big mission extension, providing overhead reconnaissance for the Perseverance rover. That's the lead story in the March 18 edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Make that five, five asteroids that have impacted Earth after tracking predicted their fiery ends. That's planetary defense progress, right? And by the way, no Earthlings were harmed by the arrival. Not this time. There's much more waiting for you at planetary.org downlink, including a beautiful image of our moon's far side taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. You can also meet all of our new STEP grant winners, including the two awardees I talked with last week on Planetary Radio. A magnetometer does exactly what its name implies. It measures the strength of a magnetic field. Margaret Kivelson fought to have one included on the Galileo spacecraft before its October 1989 ride into space aboard space shuttle Atlantis. The spacecraft reached Jupiter six years later, where, in spite of a not fully deployed main antenna, it began delivering magnificent data from the planet and its moons. To the surprise of scientists, that tiny magnetometer detected a magnetic field surrounding Europa, where none was expected. The celebration came when a later measurement found the field had inverted it fit thinking that the moon had no intrinsic magnetic field of its own, but that one was being induced by Jupiter's mighty field. How is this possible? Because, as nearly all planetary scientists now believe, there is a deep, salty ocean hidden by a thick layer of surface ice. Margaret most definitely did not stop there. As you'll hear, she is preparing to return to Europa as the science team leader for the magnetometer that will be carried by the Europa Clipper. And she's part of the European Space Agency's JUICE mission to Jupiter's icy moons. Cassini, Pioneers 10 and 11, Themis, and other missions have benefited from her participation. She chairs the Space Studies Board for the National Academies in the United States. She spoke to me from her Southern California home, not far from UCLA, where she is Distinguished Professor of Space Physics Emerita in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences. Margaret Kivelson, it is 
indeed a great honor to be able to speak to you on Planetary Radio. And I so look forward to talking to you about this marvelous career that you have led and are still leading, still very busy here well into the 21st century. Thank you for joining us. Well, pleasure to be with you. There's a fascinating 2020 uh, American Institute of Physics oral history interview with you by uh, Joanna Berman, or Berman, uh, which is quite good. But even more highly, I recommend reading your own delightful contribution to it. I guess it was first published in Advance and then was picked up by the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Beautifully written, first of all. <laughs> My impression is that you gave as good as you got, that, uh, that you are as prized by uh, your collaborators, your colleagues, and your students as, as you apparently uh, uh, treasure them. Well, of course, that's one of the wonderful things about being in science is the people you interact with. And I, I've certainly enjoyed that part of my career immensely. Let me give people one more quote from that paper. It may seem ironic for me, a space plasma physicist, to be asked to write an introductory review article for a journal on Earth and planetary sciences. I try to understand the properties of systems filled with almost nothing. <laughs> right. You, you know that uh, the plasmas, the charged particle gases that I study, have densities that are orders of magnitude smaller than the density of laboratory vacuums. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know of anybody who has made more out of nothing than, than you. <laughs> well, that's that's a strong statement, but uh, <laughs> I feel I've I've made some contributions, and that's been a lot of fun. You had your choice of colleges, so long as they were women's colleges, because after all, that's what was available, I guess, at the time. Why did you choose Radcliffe? Apparently, uh, you were impressed with some other campuses. Yeah, I was impressed with some other campuses. I I didn't like. Uh, the idea of sororities and fraternities. Hmm. And my father was a Cornell graduate. He wanted me to go to Cornell. I didn't want to be in a, a school that was dominated in any way by sororities. Uh, so my choice ended up between Radcliffe and Wellesley. And I actually looked at the course catalogs of both institutions and Radcliffe all of the classes were Harvard classes. So Harvard went on and on in sciences and had a much richer set of offerings. And that actually was what led me to choose Radcliffe. There's some people that suspect that it was because there was better access to the Harvard undergraduates, but that was not my reason. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it, especially since I, I, I read that, was it an uncle? who said, in, in light of what he expected your opportunities to be as a woman, he said, well, it's great you like this stuff, but you should become a dietitian." Exactly, exactly. And that was one of the reasons he wanted me to go to Cornell, because they had a very good department in that area. <laughs> what led you to physics? Well, first, I liked math. Uh, I liked it all through school. I never took physics in high school. I did take chemistry in high school, and I, I found it very appealing. 
So I, I knew I was going to go in that direction. I'm not quite sure. I, li- I just liked the, the fact that physics was a very mathematical subject, but it didn't require the obscure elements of mathematics. It was pretty straightforward, and I liked that. This was a brand new field, space physics. I mean, for example, I didn't realize that you, I knew about your involvement with Galileo that we will get to and some of your work since then, but you were involved in some of the first efforts to do good science, great physics in space. I'm thinking of like uh, OGO, the Orbital Geophysical Observatory. Right, right. Well, I, I started... Uh, I started on the UCLA campus just by looking for any any faculty member who had an opening for a physicist and actually almost ended up going to work with somebody who was doing condensed matter physics. Mm. But then along came an offer to work with a couple of students who were doing problem uh, theses in space physics, and I knew nothing about it, but I managed to get the job and try to stay a little bit ahead of the students I was advising. And one of them was actually working on Jupiter and the issues related to why its radio frequency emissions were modulated by the position of the moon Io in its orbit. And so I I started getting interested in the dynamics of the Jovian system, which was a good beginning to get ready for what became the Galileo mission. But it it was all just saying yes when opportunities came, even though I didn't feel I was fully qualified to do the jobs that I was asked to do. Apparently. Weren't you told by someone at UCLA that uh, that he offered you the job, but he said, if you take this job, you're going to have almost no time for the rest of your life for at least a year? That's right. That's right. That was Paul Coleman, uh, who I think was a, a member of the Planetary Society. Oh, might, good. Might want to check that. <laughs> we'll look it up. <laughs> I'll skip forward, not to Galileo yet, But those first truly pioneering spacecraft that went out to the outer solar system, Pioneers 10 and 11, which uh, which you did get to work on. And and right from that point, I mean, um, the magnetometer work, investigating these magnetic fields became so important. And we had a lot to learn, didn't we? We sure did. I mean, you know, we, we really hadn't understood how a large rapidly rotating planet would change the dynamics of of a magnetosphere surrounding it. Every measurement that was made by Pioneer 10 and 11 was revealing something that we hadn't seen before. There were lots of great things to look at. That was, And uh, it might be amusing for you to know that right now I'm going back to Pioneer 11 data on the paper I'm writing right now with a new interpretation of an old observation that's based on what we've learned in the decades since I first published it. No kidding. That is fantastic. I mean, mean, it's also evidence that we love to present on how these missions across the solar system just keep on giving. 
uh, working with that data that's now, you know, what, 60 years old? I'm, I'm trying to remember. The data were acquired in 74, yeah. Wow. Did Pioneer 10 and 11 simply, you know, wet your and, and a lot of other people's appetites to go back to Jupiter and, and oh, orbit? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, they were both flybys, so that there was very limited data, but it was it was rich and allowed us to see that there was a lot more going on than we had ever imagined. Would you describe it as a, as a fight getting the magnetometer added to the Galileo spacecraft suite of instruments, or was it just a general persuasion? Um, I know it was a lower priority than, than some of the other instruments. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that continues to be a problem. People, mm. it, it's, uh, magnetometer is a small instrument, so it's um, the impact on the critical issues of a spacecraft, mass, cost, power, mm. Those impacts are rather small compared with many of the other instruments. But in order to operate a magnetometer, you have to get it away from spacecraft sources of magnetism. So then you have to have a boom and uh, it gets more and more complicated. Uh, And that I think that's why there's a reluctance to add a magnetometer. But I think that since... uh, Since Galileo discovered compelling evidence of oceans in the moons of Jupiter using a magnetometer, it's become a lot less difficult to get a magnetometer onto a planetary mission. We'll just remind people that, you know, when they see those uh, wonderful images of like the Voyager spacecraft or Galileo or Cassini, that thing that's way out there on that boom, that's the magnetometer, <laughs> that little little box usually out on the end. You stole my next question there because, of course, had it not been for that magnetometer on Galileo, I have to wonder, would we now be seeing the Europa Clipper spacecraft coming together, another mission that you're involved with, to investigate that ocean? Right. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there was any other way to have provided such a compelling argument to go back to Europa and indeed to, to uh, the JUICE mission to uh, Ganymede. Those, those are really, I think, very much motivated by the Galileo evidence that there are oceans I'll put in a little plug here for our, our quarterly magazine, The Planetary Report, because the issue that just came out as we speak is devoted to the ocean worlds of our solar system. Did anyone suspect that we would find these oceans, vast amounts of liquid water? It seems all across the solar system. Actually, there are several papers uh, speculating on oceans beneath the surface that antedate the evidence that Galileo found. It was not a total, uh, it, it should not have been a total <laughs> surprise, but, uh, but I think that it was very surprising, but it shouldn't have been. Did you face any particularly great challenges just because you were a woman among, at that time, certainly even well into the 70s and 80s, you were often the only woman in the room? Right, right. You know, I always like to point out that that has some upsides and some downsides. And people like to talk about the downsides. They rarely talk about the upside. 
Yes. And, uh, I mean, everybody knew me. And that that's a very useful thing in a professional career to be recognized. And I, I never had to appear twice for people to remember who I was. Uh, so I, I think that one has to see that there are, there are good sides and bad sides of being an anomaly. And I guess I have a, a pretty positive outlook on life. So I, I like to look <laughs> at the positive things. But I, I would say probably in terms of advancing a career as a woman, the best thing I did was to marry a man who thought I could do anything and managed to help me in every way possible to to achieve my goals. So that was important. That's wonderful. Do you know that your book, Introduction to Space Physics, that you wrote quite some time ago, is still available from Amazon as an e-textbook, $38.59 to rent, $74.49 to buy? <laughs> well, good I don't have to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, apparently it's still making an impression on students uh, and uh, students and others. I, I just have to think when I've talked to other people who've been involved with these kinds of general survey textbooks, which uh, take on a life of their own. Is this a particular pride? Oh, it's been a joy because, you know, I meet young people in the field who tell me, I studied space physics from your textbook, and, and they're from all over the world. I mean, I, it was translated almost immediately into Chinese, and I have a copy, but I don't know if they got it right. Uh, <laughs> why should a society place a lot of emphasis on pure scientific research that may never have an application that makes money? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. I think that there are always things the society does that fundamentally um, raise the human spirit. And whether it be pursuing pure science or building the Cathedral of Notre Dame, it's something that takes the spirit beyond what is happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think there's a desire in humans to, to do something that will last. And pure science is something that is, to me, a very fundamental enhancement of the human mind that is worth doing. I know a lot of uh, people would answer, well, there's the fallout you get, I don't know, saran wrap from what was developed for space, but I, I think that's, that's nice, but I think it's actually important to seek beauty. And I find science is part of one way in which you can enhance the beauty of your, of your time. Here, here. I, I like to quote our CEO, Bill Nye, the science guy, who talks about the PB and J of science, the passion, beauty, and joy of science. Yeah, well, he expresses things so well, so give him my greetings. We not long ago lost the great Don Gurnett, yes. uh, physicist uh, who worked for so many years. Uh, and it's only been a few days since we learned that Eugene Parker passed away, after whom the Parker Solar Probe is named. 
I mention them because I, I know you work with Don Garnett at some point, but also because they seem to retain that that PB and J, that that sense of passion and beauty and joy of science, you know, right to the end. I certainly sense that from you. Do you still get a kick out of new data? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. New data, new opportunities, uh, new interpretations. Yes, wonderful. Margaret, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you and just to learn about your career. Uh, again, I recommend that listeners read that paper that you wrote, which we will provide a link to on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. Thank you, not just for this conversation, but, but for uh, many decades of leadership and great science. And uh, I, I hope that you're able to enjoy many more. Well, thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, you really asked great questions, and oh. it was fun. Space scientist Margaret Kivelson. I'll be back in a minute with Bruce here on Planetary Radio. Greetings all, Bill Nye here. Missions of discovery are underway right now thanks to the Planetary Society, the world's largest independent space advocacy organization. The fight for space science and exploration never ends. You can help us make sure our representatives understand how important this work is. There are several ways to get involved. We've got all the information you need at planetary.org slash take action. That's planetary.org slash take action. Thanks. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time yet again for What's Up with the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Bruce Batts, who's uh, back with us to load us with all kinds of cosmic information. And we have another chop shop item to give away, the fourth in our series of six. I will keep it a secret, and for a few more minutes anyway, of what we're, uh, what we're doing this time. But it's uh, anybody who's a Planetary Society fan or a member should be pleased by this one. I don't even know. I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to this. I know. I wanted to keep you and the rest of the universe in suspense. Well, then let's get through it. I'm just going to keep talking about that pre-dawn planet party. It's happening over there in the east. In that's right, the pre-dawn. There are that's right planets. We've got <laughs> three nicely bright planets very close together. We've got super bright Venus that you can't miss. If you look to its upper right, you'll see reddish Mars, much dimmer. And then yellowish Saturn is below Venus. And over the next few weeks, it'll snuggle up by Venus, then do a close snuggle by Mars on April 4th and 5th as it heads up above the other two. So it, they'll be dancing. They'll be snuggling. It'll be, well, it's going to be nice. Don't miss it, Matt. I won't. Or well, I might. All right. Let us go on to this week in space history. Aloha. Mariner 10, Mariner 10, it happened, Matt. 1974 did its first flyby of Mercury, giving us our first ever close-up view of the Mercurian, mercurial planet of Mercury. Uh, and going a little farther back, 1655, Christian Huygens discovered Titan 
the large moon of Saturn this week. Random space fact! Gee, Skipper. <laughs> Venus, you probably think of it, I think of it as having no magnetic field because it has no internally driven magnetic field, possibly due to less convection and other stuff going on inside the planet than the Earth. But it has a weak global field that is induced by interactions of the solar wind with the very upper atmosphere of Venus. So it has this induced weak uh, magnetosphere. That is so perfect, considering the conversation we just had with uh, Margaret Kivelson, talking about these induced magnetic fields and, and the things you can discover because of that. So thank you. Wow. I knew that she was your guest, which is why I went magnetic fields, but I, I had no idea what you were talking about. Serendipitous. Speaking of serendipity and squirrel, non sequiturs, <laughs> we're going to go on to the trivia contest. I asked you approximately what is the ratio of the surface escape velocity on Mars compared to Earth? And what is that answer approximately, Matt? Well, let me let, as we often do, our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, provide what he believes is the answer. Escape velocity is used to roughly get a grip. How fast you need to move ahead to break a planet's grip. Kilometers per second is the way we ought to go. And Mars compared to Earth is 0.45 in ratio. Wow. That was some impressive rhyming. I mean, wow. Yes, that is correct. You have to go about half as fast leaving Mars as you do leaving Earth. Well, thanks again, Dave. And congratulations, Frank Buckingham. Actually, doctor of veterinary medicine, Frank Buckingham in Illinois. Uh, Frank, you're our winner, a first-timer from everything I could tell, who uh, said, yep, that ratio is 0.45. So, Frank, we're going to send you that uh, better-known asteroid T-shirt from Chop Shop. ChopShopStore.com, I'll say it again, where all of the Planetary Society merch is. We have our own store there. This is that great T-shirt that uh, has a little tiny image of Osiris Rex uh, approaching asteroid Bennu. And man, do they have uh, great design. So congratulations, Frank. Do we get to find out the prize yet, or did you actually want me to provide a question? No prize revealed until you give us the question, because after all, if it's like a lousy question, maybe I won't award a prize. How do you like that? So if I do something wrong, everyone suffers. <laughs> everyone is punished. That's right. I never liked that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you won't hate the question. Here it is. It's nice and short, so we can get right to the prize. What was the first European Space Agency mission to use ion propulsion? Go to planetary.org slash galaxy quest. No, no. planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 30th. That'd be March 30th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And that fourth prize from Chop Shop, it is a Your Place in Space t-shirt. Chopshopstore.com. Take a look at it and you'll see how cool it is. Basically says Your Place in Space. And it, it's got this great hand pointing upward toward the sky. Worth it. We're done. All right, everybody, go up there, look up in the night sky, and think about the first magnet you can ever remember. Thank you, and good night. You know something? I might still have it. <laughs> I'm telling the truth. It is this little bag in a container I have, and it has a variety of magnets and iron filings I picked up on Torrance Beach 
here in California. And I don't know how old I was, but. Wow, cool. I can remember buying these little disc magnets at Radio Shack and playing with them. I was there with you. I, I have some of those in there as well. We'll have to uh, share our magnet collections sometimes. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> I mean, uh, okay, maybe we can do some professional experiments, Matt. Uh, you, sh- you should probably sign off now. He's right, of course, because he's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, who joins us every week here with his magnetic personality and what's up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its legendary members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. <laughs>